Okay. Well, truly, we are um, called to be holy. And, you know, uh, before we started, Emily said that the song she picked had nothing to do with the uh, end of Ezra. But <laughs> um, uh, one of the points I wanted to make tonight was, now we're saving this for the end, but I'll go ahead and move it to the beginning because that was a perfect song for it. Uh, is that we are all in process of being sanctified and that that process is ongoing and that process can easily become derailed. That process can easily uh, get off track when we allow the world, the things of the world, when we allow our own pasts to go unchecked against the holiness of Jesus. And so... Um, so we're in Ezra chapter 9. We're going to finish it up tonight. And, <clears throat> and um, I just want to summarize as, you know, as concisely as I can everything in Ezra so far, right? So, so the Israelites, they've been in exile. They've been in Babylon for, for 70 years. Babylon is overthrown by, by the Persians. And the Persian king um, Cyrus uh, signs a decree that allows as many Israelites as want to to return to their homeland, right? And so Zerubbabel uh, leads the first group of Israelites home. Only about 50,000, just under 50,000 Israelites choose to return from, I think, the two or three million that had been in exile. Um, and, uh, and so they're there. They, they meet opposition. Uh, one, one of the first purposes of them returning is to start rebuilding the temple and rebuilding the city walls and rebuilding the city but they meet opposition from the surrounding nations. Uh, they try to trip them up. They try to distract them. They try to send letters to the Persian king um, to say, hey, these guys shouldn't be allowed to do this. And then, you know, God turns that plan on its head and the Persian king actually um, sends back to say, not only should you not bother them, but you're now going to help them. Now you're actually going to help pay for some of these things because this is, you know, the will of God. And then about... Um, Two-thirds of the way through the book, uh, the book's namesake, Ezra, uh, finally comes on the scene. And what we know about Ezra is from how he's introduced in chapters 7 and 8. Um, so he's a scribe, um, and he has uh, a, a zeal for God's word. Twice in chapter 7, it talks about how he studies diligently the word of God. And it's, he's, it's said about him that he sets himself not just to, to, to read it, and learn it, but to do it, right? And so um, he then comes, he, he makes his journey to Jerusalem with a much smaller group, and he's bringing with him all these treasures from the temple that they're to return to the temple. And so it's a dangerous trip because not only is it long, and there's not a whole lot of them, but they're carrying a lot of gold and silver, you know? And so the Persian king offers to give them protection. He offers to send with them um, a, like, a, like an armed escort, um, and Ezra says that he was too ashamed to ask for help because he didn't want to diminish the glory of God. He's like, we're going to trust that God's going to protect us. And then right after that, he goes into like a, like a time of prayer and fasting. Like, Lord, please protect us. Right? Um, uh, and and so, so they make the journey. Uh, they, they arrive in Jerusalem. All the, all the temple artifacts, all the gold, all, this, all the silver, everything is accounted for. And, uh, and, and nothing happens, so they don't get attacked, and they're safe. And so this is where we are, we are beginning. Um, 
Uh, and so Ezra and the people of God have just had this, this uh, I would call it a victory. You know, they, they, they made this treacherous journey with all these uh, valuables and they made it uh, without any trouble, God protecting them. Um, and so you can imagine uh, that it's a time of celebration, right? Uh, the, um, the artifacts are being returned to their rightful place in, in God's place of worship. Maybe there's some reunions. Maybe some of the people that are coming with Ezra already had family there or friends or um, who knows. You know, um, they, they're there. They're celebrating. They get about three days to kind of catch their breath. And then after three days, Ezra receives some really bad news. And, um, and it's the kind of bad news that threatens, it, it, it doesn't just remind them of the failures of the nation's past, but it threatens to bring them back down that same, that the very same path that led them into exile, the seeds of that failure are, are already being planted in the Israelite community. And so it's a reminder to us as we read about the Israelites that, that the battle's never over this side of eternity, and we can never get too comfortable. And um, whether it's the enemy who's always, you know, roving around like, like a roaring lion, or whether it's just our own flesh that yearns for, for independence and that yearns to do things our way, the battle is never over. Uh, and so it seems like um, the story of God's people, whether in Scripture or for us, is that almost every time I can think of after there is a season or an instance of great victory or of great celebration, it is almost always followed by, um, by great challenge. Okay, so that's what's going to happen here. So <clears throat> we're going to start in chapter 9. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. So here's how we'll do this. Um, I don't know if, if this is going to affect the recording, but are we able to, to share reading responsibilities? Is that going to be awkward on the recording at all? That, okay, so that'll be awkward, so we won't do that. Um, but what, what we will do is, uh, instead of saying at the very end, if anyone has any questions, ask it, then what, what I will say is if you have a question or even a reflection or a comment halfway through, awkward or not, uh, then we will welcome those. So, um, All right, I'm going to read chapter 9, verses 1 through 4. When these things were done, the, the leaders came to me saying, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with respect to the abominations of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. That's an important list, and we're going to come back to that list later. It's going to be very similar, not, not exact. It's going to be similar to a list that God gives the people of Israel all the way back in Deuteronomy. Um, and so... Um, so Ezra shows up, he's there, and then some of the leaders come to him and say, hey, there's a problem. Um, some of the, not just the people of, of Israel, but even the priests and the Levites, those who are supposed to be serving in the temple, those who are supposed to be uh, representing and mediating for the people to, to the Lord, um, they have not separated themselves from the things of the pagan nations uh, around us. And here's how, verse 2, for they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy seed is mixed with the peoples of those lands. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and rulers has been foremost in this trespass. That's also important because they say, um, 
the people who are supposed to be in charge, he says the, the leaders and the rulers, they're the ones leading the way in this. They're the ones leading the people down this path of intermarrying with the surrounding pagan nations. Verse 3. So when I heard this thing, I tore my garment and my robe and plucked out some of the hair of my head and beard and sat down astonished. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel assembled to me because of the transgression of those who had been carried away captive. And I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. And so Ezra hears this news and um. And we have a little bit of context, a little bit of, of added context from the book of Malachi. Um, so if you want to, you can turn to Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. So Malachi is an Old Testament prophet, and he, uh, he prophesied during the time of, of exile. And so he's prophesying um, to the Israelites. Normally I would have this on, on the PowerPoint, that'd be quicker. But uh, Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. Here's what Malachi the prophet says to these. So, so this, this prophecy is before Ezra comes on the scene, but after they've returned from exile. So chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously with one another by profaning the covenant of the fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously. And so remember, the people, the Israelites who have returned from, from Babylon, they're all from the tribe of Judah or Benjamin or they are Levites. Those are the only three tribes really represented. Um, and so he says, Judah has dealt treacherously and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem for Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution that which he loves. He has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob the, the man who does this, being awake and aware, the one who's doing it knowingly. He doesn't, he's not like mistakenly marrying someone. Right? Um, yet who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. So these people are, they are knowingly breaking covenant and then they're also bringing offerings to the Lord. Again, um, with great hypocrisy, right? And this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying, so he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, for what reason? And it's like, why, why would the Lord not receive our offerings? Why is he not moved by our tears? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. And so the issue facing Ezra isn't just that the Israelites are now intermarrying with the pagan nations, but not all of them. Some, some of the men who have taken these, these pagans as wives did so by divorcing their first wives, did so by divorcing their Jewish wives, the, the wives of their youth. Um, so so some, some of these marriages are being motivated simply by attraction or lust. Some of them are probably motivated by um, more men than women returned. Um, most women probably wouldn't have been 
super excited about making that treacherous journey. And so there's probably a lot more men in the Israelite camp than there is women. So some of them are like, well, what choice do we have? I'll just marry one of these women who are already here. Um, and maybe some of the men were marrying them. Maybe some of the leaders were marrying other women, maybe to try to make political alliances or agreements. There's all kinds of reasons. Um, but none of them are good enough. And as we see in Malachi, some of them are just motivated simply by lust, simply by, well, I'm tired of my old wife. I want a new one, right? So it's a grave issue that Ezra is, is facing when he, when he returns. Um, and I think that's why we see when he hears about it, he doesn't say anything. He doesn't, like, it, it's almost like he's just stunned into silence. It says, again, that um, I tore my garment and my robe and plucked out some of the hair. I like his, only some of the hair. <laughs> you know, you know, he's got to leave a little bit there. I also think it's funny that it says plucked. Because when I hear plucked, I think, you know, like, like one at a time. Like, like, I feel like he's like in a mirror, like, I'll take that one and that one. Maybe not. Anyways, um, he says, I tore my garment, my robe, and plucked out some of the hair of my head and beard and sat down astonished. And then it says that everyone kind of gathers to him. And, and at the end of, of verse 4, he says, and I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. He just sits there in mourning with his clothes torn and his hair and his beard plucked. And, and he's just speechless. And, and here's why. Remember, Ezra is a learned scribe. He has studied the law. He has studied the covenant uh, that God's given to Moses. He studied the records of, of, of the kings that we call first and second kings. Um, he's not just studied them, he has learned from them. In fact, um, many, many or most traditions believe that Ezra is the one who rewrote the books of Kings, and that's what we call first and second chronicles. So if you read first and second chronicles and first and second kings and you put them in parallel to one another, it's almost the, um, the same thing, except that Chronicles focuses more on the kings of Judah and on their failures, um, and, and Chronicles was written for the people in exile um, as, as, as a reminder of their history, so that as we're coming back from exile, let's not forget the mistakes of the past. Let's not forget the chain of events that led us into slavery to begin with, and most people believe that Ezra is the one who wrote that. So, Ezra has this immense, not just knowledge and understanding, but wisdom of God's word. And then he hears this. And so what is going through Ezra's mind? Well, let's unpack it a little bit. We're going to go to a few Old Testament passages in Deuteronomy and 1 Kings. So first of all, let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. In Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 4, Ezra would have known this. It says, and the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess and has cast out many nations before you. And here's that list I was saying is going to be very similar to the first list. The Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Seven nations that are greater and mightier than you. God has to remind them. <laughs> um, and when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them, nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your son, for they will turn, and here's the reason why, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. So 
there is that warning that all the way back in 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 the covenant given to the Isra- the Israelites in the wilderness, God is saying, when you enter the promised land, don't try to make peace with these people. Okay, they are corrupt. They are beyond redemption, and they've had their opportunities to repent. They are now set apart for judgment. All right, um, don't don't make peace with them, and don't intermarry with them. Now, even though God says that in chapter seven. In chapter 21, there is some exception um, to that uh, command. So if we turn to Deuteronomy chapter 21, in verses 10 through 14, it says, When you go out to war against your enemies, and the Lord your God delivers them into your hand, and you take them captive, and you see among the captives a beautiful woman, and desire her, and would take her for your wife, and that was not an uncommon thing back then, you, you know, and with any um, tribal warfare, you know, if, if, if you were taken captive, then you were at the mercy of your captors, and very often they would just take whoever they wanted. But God had different rules for his people. He says, then you shall bring her home to your house, and she shall shave her head and trim her nails. So that's, that was a sign of, um, of a fresh start that... Um, uh, so he says, if you see a woman that you like, and hey, she's attractive, I might like to marry her. Uh, God says, first of all, you're going to bring her into your home before you can marry her, and you're going to shave her head. He says you're going to trim her, her her nails. I don't know how long their nails would get, um, but I'm sure that was like again um, trimming off all the all the all the things that were kind of ornamental or decorative, um, all the cosmetic things. Um, she shall put off the clothes of her captivity. So she's to, to leave behind all the clothes from her past life. Remain in your house and mourn her father and her mother a full month. After that, you may go into her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. And it shall be, if you have no delight in her, then you shall set her free. But you certainly shall not sell her for, for money. You shall not treat her brutally because you have humbled her. So the exception to this rule where God says don't marry, don't intermarry with these other nations. He says if you're taking, if you see someone taken captive, and, and here's, here's the reason for this like month-long waiting period. If she's willing to leave behind her old life, you know, that's, that's, that's the, the symbolism of leaving behind her old clothes, of shaving her head and the whole fresh start. If she's willing to leave behind her old life, to mourn, it says, to mourn her mother and father, not just like mourn that, they're, that they've been killed, but to repent of the lifestyle that her family led in the former land. If she's willing to leave all that behind and be your wife and you still delight in her, then, then she can be part of the community of God's people. Right? And so that's going to that's gonna be important later. Um, there's, there's in, there, 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 are, there are examples of this happening, right? Um, Two very popular ones, right? Who are they? Rahab, thank you, and also an R name. And Ruth, good. Rahab and Ruth, not Israelites, right? But because they showed a willingness to leave behind their, own, their, their, their old lives and commit to worshiping the one true God, God welcomes them into the community of his people. So um, in the book of Deuteronomy, again, there's that command, don't, don't intermarry with them. Um, unless they're willing to leave behind everything and become uh, followers of Yahweh. So that's the precedent. 
And here's the reason, and we've already read it a little bit, but if you turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 12, this is an echo of a verse we, we read already, but in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 39 through, 39 through 42, uh, wait, that's, that's not right. I wrote that wrong. I think it's uh, 29 through 32. Yeah. When the Lord your God cuts off from before you the nations which you go to dispossess and you displace them and dwell in their land, take heed to yourself that you are not ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed from before you and that you do not inquire after their gods, saying, how did these nations serve their gods? I also will do likewise. God's saying, you're not going to worship me the way other people worship their gods. I'm, I'm, I am different. Um, you're going to worship me differently. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. So we can't just come to God. This is kind of a little side note. We can't just come to God and say, well, God, God will accept us however we come, but we can't worship him however we choose to worship him. That's, that's uh, you know, a falsehood that has kind of penetrated in, in, into the church. That, um, that, that I can worship God however I choose to worship God. And God's like, no, I'm different. And the, the way you adore and worship the things of the world, I don't want you to adore me in that way because it's corrupted. He says, for every abomination to the Lord, which he hates, they have done to their gods. For they burn even their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it nor take away from it. So, Initially, one of the reasons why he says not to marry these women is because they will introduce you to their gods, right? And here he says, and here's why that's, that's, that's a huge deal. Because if you tolerate that, if you make an exception, if you compromise, your heart will be led astray, your worship will be diluted. And we see that throughout the prophets. One of the, the ongoing accusations of the prophets is, you know, you're worshiping God on the outside, but your hearts are completely devoted to something and someone else, right? So... As Ezra hears about the report of the people, he's thinking about the covenant laws in Deuteronomy. He's also thinking about Israel's monarchy and the history of Israel's monarchy, right? He's probably thinking about the golden age and all the prosperity under King David and the, for the first half of King Solomon's reign, the prosperity under King Solomon. Um, and what is the thing that Scripture says caused the downfall of King Solomon and that led to the split of the kingdom into two separate kingdoms and that eventually led to them being um, given over to idolatry and then taken captive. Um, we'll read that. In 1 Kings chapter 11, 1 Kings chapter, I'm in 2 Kings, chapter 11 verses 1 through 2. But King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Edomites, the Sidonians, and Hittites, from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. So Solomon's heart is turned away by intermarrying with foreign women, um, he can't control himself. He has not just a wandering eye. He has a, you know, a, a wandering covenant. Um, and because of that, his heart is turned away from the Lord. 
and um, and you guys know you know your Old Testament history, right? Um, through a chain of events that eventually leads to, um, like like we said, the the nation splits. They are given over to idolatry, and so Ezra has all this. I believe Ezra has all this in mind. I know we just covered a lot of Old Testament ground. But it's important that we point out it's not just that the Israelites are marrying foreign women. You know, that in and of itself is not the issue. Uh, we've seen how God makes um, God will make exceptions for that if their hearts are right. Um, it's that, and and we're going to see this in what Ezra prays um, that they have just gotten back to the promised land. Like here, we've been in exile for over seventy years, enduring the punishment of our unfaithfulness. And within one generation, within less than a generation, within just a few years, we're back in the promised land. Already, we're going back to these things that got us into exile to begin with. So all of that hits Ezra, and he just sits in astonishment, is what Scripture says. He just sits there, stunned in silence. He doesn't eat. He can't eat. He can't drink. He's just like, how could this happen, right? Um, Does everyone... Everyone following any any thoughts or reflections or questions before we, we, we move on? Okay. So, um, so I want you to imagine Ezra's heart. Imagine how his heart sank when he heard this news about the Israelites once again intermarrying. Um, and uh, and again, I think I think we we would do well um, to pause and and reflect on that same challenge for us because how often do we forget? Like, how, how often do we endure the consequence of our sins, experience the radical grace of God and restoration, and then shortly thereafter find ourselves in the same cycle, right? Like we read this and we're like, how dumb could you be? You know, how, how just, uh, how, how, how ignorant, you know, to, to go back to that. But the story of God's people is the same throughout history. And, and we do the same thing. We don't learn from our past. We don't learn from our mistakes. We do, but then we so easily go back to them. We so readily, we get comfortable. We get overconfident. We get, okay, well, God is so good. God's so gracious. I can just kind of take it easy. And we begin to make compromises with the world. And sooner or later, that old flesh just creeps right back in um, and takes hold all over again. Um, so I think, again, we do well when we read this um, not to think of the Israelites and think how, how awful they were. Uh, God's preserved it for us for a reason to say, don't let this be your story too. Right now, for, thankfully for them, God had anointed and sent Ezra as his, as his mouthpiece. And so, verse 5. At the evening sacrifice, I arose from my fasting. Having torn my garment and my robe, I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. And I said, oh, my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you, my God. I said, Lord, I can't even, I can't even look at you. I'm just so embarrassed. Um, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has grown up to the heavens. And so Ezra just feels consumed by the iniquity of, by the sin and the rebellion of God's people. And, you know, in this prayer, I... I think this is one of the more beautiful prayers I have I have read and studied, and 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 I and I think it's because Ezra is speechless. He doesn't know what to say. He doesn't know how to pray. It's not this like beautifully eloquent thing that 
um, is like deeply profound. Throughout this prayer, Ezra is just saying, Lord, I don't know what to say. I just, I don't know how to, I, I don't even know what to ask for. We're going to see how he says, I, I don't even feel like it's right to ask for more grace. And so um, even in those times when we come face to face with our sin, when we're in that moment where we're like, Lord, I blew it again. And I just asked for forgiveness yesterday. And here I am, I got to ask for it again. And sometimes you can get to that moment and just not know what to do, not know what to say. And the Lord is still gracious in those times. We, and we praise God that we serve a gracious God who casts our sin as far as the east is from the west and whose long suffering is, is unending. Um, but in this moment, Ezra is overcome with, with that conviction. So he says, um, again, I can't even lift my head up to you, Lord. I'm too ashamed and humiliated. Um, he feels consumed by their sins. Verse 7, since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been very guilty. So this, is, this has been our story over and over again. We're always guilty. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plunder, and to humiliation, as it is this day. And so he's like, for, for all of our history, Lord, we've done this. It's, it's almost less of a prayer and more of just like a venting session. He's like, God, we just can't seem to figure it out. For all of our history, we keep messing up and, 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 and we're always at the mercy of these pagan kings because we keep rejecting your covenant. And here we are again. And then verse eight, he says, and now for a little while, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a peg in his holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. For we were slaves, yet our God did not forsake us in, in our, our, our bondage, but he extended mercy to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to revive us, to repair the house of our God, to rebuild its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. So he's saying, you know, Lord, and, and here you've been so gracious to us. We've, even though our entire history has been one of rebellion, you still have shown us mercy. You still have shown us, uh, you, you've preserved a remnant to, to continue on in and being your people. In verse 10, And now, O oh our God, what shall we say after this? So he's like, Lord, what, what can we say? Uh, For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, the land, so he's saying, Lord, you've, you told us this already. You, know, uh, you, you, you told us through the prophets that the land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land with the, with the uncleanness of the peoples of the lands with their abominations which have filled it from one end to another with, your, with, with their impurity. Now therefore do not give your daughters as wives for their sons nor take their daughters to your sons and never seek their peace or prosperity that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it as an inheritance to your children forever. So Ezra is saying, Lord, you've told us all these things. This is, this is what you told us to do and here we haven't done it again. Verse 13, and after all that has been after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds, for our great guilt, since you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us such deliverance as this, should we again break your commandments and join in a marriage with the people committing these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you had consumed us so that there would be no remnant or survivor? O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for we are left as a remnant, as it is this day. Here we are before you in our guilt, though no one can stand before you because of this. 
in that entire prayer, there's no asking. There's no requesting. It's just complete and utter brokenness. Like he's he he's not like he has he's not explicitly asking for forgiveness. I think he probably is implicitly, but he's not saying, "Lord, please have mercy on us again." You know, um, you know, Lord, please uh, deliver us again or forgive us again. He's just saying, "God, I don't know what to do." God, I, God, I, I don't know how you could be more merciful. I don't know how you could be more righteous. And here we are breaking your commandment again. And so Ezra is just like at the bottom. He's just completely broken. He doesn't even know how to pray. Um, and then in that moment, when he is completely focused on and consumed with a conversation with God, unbeknownst to him, God is using that conversation. He's using those prayers to, be, to open the eyes of the people, to open the hearts of the people to conviction and repentance. So this is another important takeaway for, for us. As we're going to see in, at, the at the beginning of chapter 10, God will do, God, God can change more hearts through our prayers and through our examples than he can through our words and through our actions. That's not an excuse for us to, to not try. That's not an excuse for us to, to not share the gospel or to not you know, challenge people in their sin. Okay? Um, but sometimes we can take that effort and make it a work of the flesh. Sometimes we can take that effort and say, here, here's how I'm going to do it. Here's how I'm going to win this person for the Christ. Or here's, here's how I'm going to make sure this brother or sister repents. You know? And that becomes a work of the flesh and that becomes a work of destruction. Um, God will do so much more through our heartfelt, sincere prayers and our example without us even realizing. So it says in verse 1 of chapter 10, Now while Ezra was praying, and while he was confessing, weeping, and bowing down before the house of God, a very large assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him from Israel. So he's sitting there praying and weeping and going through this whole thing with God. He's not calling the people to repentance. He's not saying, hey, everyone, come listen to me. Come Come and, and hear my words. No, people are just being drawn to him without him even trying. Um, for the people wept very bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of, of Elam, spoke up and said to Ezra, We have trespassed against our God and have taken pagan wives from the peoples of the land. Yet now there is hope in Israel in spite of this. This is a funny thing to say. Because, um, you know, obviously the prayer and the example of Ezra has struck a chord. Because all these men and women and children, you know, they're there and they're, and they're hearing him pray to God and his prayers are affecting them. And it says that they, that they wept bitterly, that they're in tears. They're feeling the weight of conviction. They're feeling the weight of truth and of covenant, beckoning them back into covenant. And then this guy, Shechaniah, speaks up to Ezra, and maybe Ezra is still in the middle of, of praying, and Shechaniah interrupts him, and he's like, Ezra, you're right. You know, we have trespassed again. We have married pagan wives. And then he follows up with this statement, yet now there is hope in Israel in spite of this. And I wonder, I wonder why he said that. I wonder what, like, like you know, if, 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 if you're on the, the, the offending side of this, like, I feel like it's not your right to say there's hope, you know? I feel like you should be more in conviction. You, you should be, you know, begging for forgiveness. But there was something about Ezra's example um, that not just offered conviction. God didn't just use it just to offer conviction. God also used it to offer hope. And maybe, maybe their thought was, 
This man loves the Lord. This man knows the word. And yes, we have trespassed greatly, but if God can use anyone to bring us back, maybe God will use Ezra to bring us back. And I think maybe that's why he says, yet now there is hope in Israel in spite of this. And so he continues to tell Ezra, now therefore, let us make a covenant with our God. So he's gonna make a promise to put away all these wives and those who have been born to them according to the advice of, of my master and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for this matter is your responsibility. We also are with you. Be of good courage and do it. And so he's like, Ezra, we can see God's hand on you. We can see that God has set you apart for this purpose. He says, this is your responsibility. He doesn't do that to deflect responsibility, but to acknowledge God's anointing over Ezra. And he says, um, do it and we're with you. Do it courageously because we, we, we see that we need it. What a blessing. But, I mean, if, if that was a regular thing in, in, in the church, if God's people were just regularly, constantly in that mindset of, um, of, yes, do it, we are with you, and there's courage and there's humility, wow, what could God do? Then Ezra arose and made the leaders of the priests, the Levites, and all Israel swear an oath that they would do according to this word. So he's like, do you promise? Do you promise you're going to change? Because um, you're going to have to swear. Um, so they swore an oath. Then Ezra rose up from before the house of God and went into the chamber of Je- Jehohanan, the son of Eliashib. And when he came there, he ate no bread and drank no water, for he mourned because of the guilt of those from the captivity. And so this is, this is good. This, we can learn a lot. We can learn so, so much from Ezra. It would have been easy in that moment when he, had the people's, when he had the people's attention and they were given over to the cause, they were ready, they were motivated, they were challenged and said, Ezra, whatever you say, we'll do it. It would have been very easy for him to say, all right, get rid of all your wives right now. And then that's it, end of story, right? Um, but that's not what Ezra does. He, he separates himself. He goes into solitude. He goes into this guy's house and it says he spends time fasting. And we can presume he spends time praying. And so before he makes any rash decisions, he seeks the Lord. So, okay, Lord, you clearly are the one who moved these people's hearts because I wasn't even talking to them, <laughs> right? And so if you're the one moving their hearts, then you need to be the one to show us what to do. We don't want to be rash. We don't want to be, you know, um, we don't want to make another mistake. Lord, show us what to do. And they issued a proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the descendants of the captivity that they must gather at Jerusalem and that whoever would not come within three days, according to the instructions of the leaders and elders, all his property would be confiscated. And they had this right because King Cyrus had given them authority over the land. And so they're saying, all right, everyone in the Jerusalem community needs to be here in three days. If you don't come, then you lose your property right. You're basically cast out of the city. All his property would be confiscated and he himself would be separated from the assembly of those from the captivity. If you don't show up, you're no longer part of us. So all the men of Judah and Benjamin gathered at Jerusalem within three days. This was three days later. It was the ninth month on the 20th of the month and all the people sat in the open square of the house of God, trembling because of this matter. So fear and conviction had fallen upon them. And it turns out it was raining pretty heavy too. So that might be another reason why they were trembling. Trembling because of this matter and because of heavy rain. (laughs) 
that makes quite the vivid image. Um, they're all gathered in the courtyard. It's heavy rain. It's not just like sprinkling. Like a little bit of a sprinkle kept us from going to the park. You know, um, There's a heavy rain and it is drenching them and they're trembling and yet they're still there. And so you just picture in your mind's eye Ezra getting up to address the people. He's having to, to yell over the sound of the rain. The people are all gathered there in fear and readiness to hear what the Lord's going to say. Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have transgressed and have taken pagan wives, adding to the guilt of Israel. Now therefore make confession to the Lord God of your fathers and do his will. Separate yourselves from the people of the land and from the pagan wives. So he says, you have to confess. I can't do this for you. All right. Before God can do anything, confession and repentance is needed. Then all the assembly answered and said with a loud voice, yes, as you have said, so we must do. But there are many people. It is the season for heavy rain and we are not able to stand outside, nor is this the work of one or two days for there are many of us who have transgressed in this matter. So they're even saying, this is going to take a while because there's a, we've, we've really messed this up. There's a lot of us who have done this and to go through each family and, and figure out you know, who, who married who, um, it's going to take time. Um, this, that's important, by the way, because later on at the end of this chapter, we're going to see how many of the men ended up putting their wives away. And it's not a very big number. And yet in this interaction, it sounds like there's a bunch of them. It sounds like it, 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 it takes three months. It takes three months from beginning to end for them to go through this process. And, and if it takes that long, you would think there's probably thousands, maybe. I mean, who knows, right? But there's a lot of them. Um, and so in verse 14, please let the leaders of our entire assembly stand and let all those in our cities who have taken pagan wives come at appointed times together with the elders and judges of their cities until the fierce wrath of our God is turned away from us in this matter. And this little side note here, it says, only Jonathan, the son of, of, of Asahel, and Jehaziah, the son of Tikvah, opposed this, and Meshulam and Shabbatai, the Levite, gave them support. We don't know why they opposed it. Um, our first reaction is maybe they were like, I don't want to get rid of my pagan wife. Or it could be that they were overzealous and they were saying, no, we shouldn't wait to do this. We should get rid of them right now. We don't really know. It's just a little side note the Bible gives us, and then it moves on. And so we'll move on. Verse 16, Then the descendants of the captivity did so, and Ezra the priest with certain heads of the father's households were set apart by the father's households, each of them by name, and they sat down on the first day of the tenth month to, to examine the, the matter. By the first day of the first month, three months later, they finished questioning all the men who had taken pagan wives. So I'm going to stop there. Um, I'll, I'll read a few more verses, but um, why, why would it take three months? You know, again, there's probably a lot of them, but why not just say, okay, if you married a pagan wife, yes, send her away. Right? Um, it's first of all worth noting that the, the, the consequence or the punishment wasn't execution. They weren't going to put them to death, which is, again, nice, That's the, uh, the grace of God. But, uh, but they were to, to, to send them back to their own people, right? Um, and and if, uh, if they were going to follow the example set by Abraham and Hagar, do you guys remember in the, in, in the book of Genesis when, when Abraham gets Hagar pregnant and he sends her away because her son is not the son of promise? He sends her away, but also sends her with provision, right? 
So the assumption is that they're not just sending them out into the desert to die. They're sending them back to their own people with enough provision to make sure they get there safely. That's the plan. Even that shouldn't take three months. Um, I believe, and most commentators believe, that the reason why it's taking three months is because they're going through that same process that we read about in, in Deuteronomy with these women to say, are you willing to leave behind your old life? Are you willing to, to, to exclusively worship the one true God? Are you willing to, to throw away the idols that you brought from your, from your home to, to, um, to say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm no longer my father and mother's daughter, and now I'm joined to it. So, so that would take time, because it says that, that they had to question each of the men and so what are they asking them? I think they're asking them, you know, is your wife willing to live as an Israelite, as a worshiper of Yahweh, or is she still too connected to her, 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 her old life? I also think that's the reason why it says, so, so in verses 18 through the rest of the chapter, we have this long list of, of the men who had to send their wives away. I say it's a long list. There's about 114 names there. Um, so only about 114 men had to send away their pagan wives. That tells me two things. First of all, how many people returned uh, with Zerubbabel in the first return? Yeah, about, about 50,000. So if about 50,000 people returned and only like 115 or so of them um, had wives that were unwilling to let go of their pagan lifestyles, um, that tells us that the, even that small number was important enough for God to say, you have to cast them out. A little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump, right? When you, when you compromise for such a small percentage of the population to, to live in sin, it will eventually corrupt the whole nation, right? And we're seeing that now <laughs> as, as a nation, right? That's one thing it tells me that even a little bit of sin in the community of God's people is enough for, to, for God to, to, to act. The second thing it tells me is that if only 115 men had to turn their wives away, then it seems like a lot of these women were willing to live as worshipers of, of Yahweh. Um, if I was teaching students in like a youth group, I would, I would warn them to say this is not a... Uh, um, a reason to like missionary date, right? Well, I'll, you know, like I'll, I'll date him until he's saved. And then you know, um, it's not. In fact, it is a warning to the opposite that anything and anyone in our lives, anything and anyone, especially the people who have access to the most influential, intimate parts of our lives, uh, anything and anyone that are, that are not brought under subjection to the worship of King Jesus and him and him alone need to be cast out. We need to let go of those things, right? Those are the things that will draw us back into our past sins, into the same fleshly habits that we seem unable to break ourselves free from. It's because we're unwilling to let go of even those small things, you know, that in the, in the grand scheme of 50,000 might not seem like it's that big of a deal, but in God's eyes it is. And so um, it says... Um, I'll just read verse 19. And they gave their promise that they would put away their wives and being guilty, they, they presented a ram of the flock as their trespass offering. So a ram is the offering you bring when you know, when you acknowledge that you have sinned knowingly. It wasn't an accident. You know, you knew what you were doing and it was wrong. 
Um, and then at the very end of the chapter, it says, all these had taken pagan wives, and some of them had wives by whom they had children. And again, even their children, and it sounds kind of cruel. Um, but, uh, but even today, if there is a separation, the children almost always go with the mother, right? And so, um, so these men, and the implication, it says, some of them had wives by whom they had children. So not many of them had to send their children away. But, but even, even the children, along with the wives, were sent back to their homeland. Um, so that's how the book of Ezra ends, right? Um, with this, um, there's, there's this huge victory again. They return to the promised land with the temple treasures. They're excited. Uh, God protected them along the journey, and immediately there is this huge threat. The same threat that led them into exile to begin with has returned. What are they going to do about it? Are they going to tolerate it? Are they going to fall into the same traps as their fathers? Are they going to learn from it? And, um, you know, to their credit, um, between, between the return from exile to the time of, of, of Christ, they were very, um, very diligent about covenant keeping as, the, as an Israelite nation, you know, for what, like almost three to four hundred years. You know, those same things are like, nope, we're not going to do those again, <laughs> you know. But they almost did here. And so, um, and so I, think, I think after the summer services in the park, I think Pastor Victor's plan is to continue straight into Nehemiah, which I think would be very good, um, because this, this return and revival takes place in three phases. There's the first return with, with Zerubbabel, and with Ezra, and then Nehemiah's going to come later with more, more Jews. So... Um, so as I said in the beginning, we also are called to be holy. We also are sanctified and called to be God's people. Um, and so it behooves us to, to take captive every single, everything, every compromise that would threaten to derail us in pursuing the holiness of Christ. So uh, 